0: Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host today, Doug Berkey. Here at the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. And to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here today, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Last week, the Mitchell Institute hosted its second annual Space Bar Security Forum. Bottom line, if you want to know about the intersection between space and defense from leaders making the key policy, budget, strategy, and technology decisions, this is the place to be. We offered one-stop shopping from top leaders shaping where National Security Space Enterprise is going and why. We had national media in attendance, everyone from Wall Street Journal and C-SPAN, to a clean sweep of the defense trade press, and that's why you've been seeing significant event coverage recently. But we also wanted to give you our first-hand take on what was covered and why it matters. So with that, let me introduce our two members of our space team that were key with this event, Tim Ryan and Charles Galbraith. Hey, Doug. Great to be here. Doug, thanks for having us. Hey, man. and thanks to you guys for all the work to execute this event so i want to treat this like a cliff notes review session so i want to start at the beginning and run through the day's proceedings hitting the highlights so folks get an understanding of what was covered and the key takeaways so first off general saltzman he kicked off the day now i gotta say i was impressed our nation's first chief of space operations general raymond he had a lot on his shoulders standing up a new service But what I heard from General Saltzman is a leader who's taking advantage of that foundational work and pressing ahead aggressively. And considering the challenges in space, this is crucial. So guys, give me the highlights. How does General Saltzman see the threat environment in space? What's his view on Space Force's role in helping address this? And what were the key takeaways? Yeah, that's a
1: great setup. So let me tell you, General Saltzman sees that these threats are real. He understands that and he's setting the Space Force on a path towards that. He understands that the adversary is very much trying to take away our advantage that we currently hold in space. A couple different things that he talked about in ways that they're kind of after this. The Space Force is starting to focus on proliferating orbits. Again, that's gonna be able to build resilience into operations. Understand that's the first major muscle movement to an architecture that is actually needed in the environment that they are operating at today. Make no mistake, everything that is on orbit that we are utilizing today was designed, was quite frankly launched and put into operations when space was still considered a benign environment. It is not the reality of today. It appears, based off some of the discussions that that he had, that there's some deep conversations happening on what deterrence is actually going to look like and the concept of conceal and reveal. Again, for those that aren't familiar, that's where the Department of Defense or a service actually sits and figures out what is it that they want to be able to conceal. Sometimes that's for strategic messaging. Sometimes that's to be able to have a deterrent effect. And then there's those things that they want to be able to keep revealed so that the adversary cannot exploit that. And I don't think anyone that was able to listen to General Saltzman at this forum or at any other place that he's talked to lately that. His commitment to training, he understands fully that the key to fielding a credible combat force is being able to provide the training environment that they need. I'm telling you, the Guardians today cannot continue to utilize the trainers and simulators that Charles and I used when we were coming up through, because it wasn't adequate then, and it sure isn't adequate when you actually have a thinking enemy and adversary operating on your domain.
0: And I want to pull the thread on that. He described it, and I'm not a space person. And so he described it in a way that really clicked for me. And it's that before you guys had really procedures trainers for technical understanding now you're in a very dynamic domain where the adversary is doing things in a very aggressive fashion and so it's an entirely different operational mindset it's kind of the difference between just a train drives itself on tracks that are predetermined yeah you can adjust speed and a few other variables but it goes where it goes now you're on the highway and you've got to drive in a multi dimensional zone with other actors doing different things it's a totally different requirement we got to get on with it is that accurate you're right.
1: The environment that I grew up in, the environment that Charles grew up in, we had a big old binder checklist, if you will. We were able to reference those, and that's what we trained on, was making sure, to your point, that we could drive the train. The track was straight, and we just drove the train. The reality today is, in that big old binder checklist, you don't have a tab that you can flip to that says, Chinese robotic arm on orbit just ripped my... Solar panel off. And here's what I'm going to do. That just isn't there. You need to be able to train on that in an environment that you can see that so that the first time that it happens, that isn't the first time you're being able to see that. And now they are becoming to have an operational mindset that makes them the warfighters that we need.
0: Yeah. And I think a huge part when we talk about this here at Mitchell is also, it's not just space force that needs to train on that. It is the entire joint force because what does the guy in the destroyer that's depending on the data coming off that satellite do when that satellite was just disabled or how does the entire enterprise work? What are fallback options and all of that? It's just, you play this out and we all need to get on board with this. This isn't just for guardians to solve.
2: Yeah. But one of the things for guardians that is unique is that everything that they know about the space domain comes from data that is already old by the time they receive it. And so uh, the Chinese satellite might've just ripped off your solar array, but uh, that happened an hour ago and you don't know about it until now. And so there has to be some realization that the space domain awareness has to improve, become more real time. And I think General Saltzman hit on the point that all of the data that we have from space is inherently late by the time it reaches the operators. And once upon a time, you could project where the satellite was going to be in the future based off of where it had been. And like you said, it's a train on its tracks. But now that we have increased maneuverability of satellites and adversaries that are responding to us and and potentially moving around us, that is no longer a viable option. And so we need a much more robust space domain awareness. So that's just one of the changes that I think is critical to General Saltzman's discussion. He also highlighted the fact that, again, on space domain awareness, there's a great collaboration between the ops and the researchers. So you've got the scientists sitting down with the operators looking at data and applying artificial intelligence to that data set. So so there's some incredible work going on out there. And it's not just space domain awareness and data. It's also every aspect of the Space Force. How we recruit people, how we train them, etc. I was thrilled to hear that last year the Space Force basically did a direct commissioning for eight people with cyber backgrounds. And this was based off of their experience, their skill set. And their backgrounds. And in fact, one of them was direct commissioned as lieutenant colonel. So direct commission isn't something that's new necessarily, but we've done it for medical personnel and lawyers and things like that. But the fact that we're now doing this for more of an operational community, including the cyber operators, that's just tremendous.
0: I just think that I want to touch back on this notion of the data and space domain awareness. The way in which General Saltzman explained this really made it click for me. Again, I've sat through a million of these speeches, I've talked to you guys for years and all, but I never really clicked with me how the data that you guys operate is so historic and you guys are using predictive models to try to update it. And in the air domain, that would be like taking a weather forecast that's a couple of days old and flying cross country and hoping that where they said the thunderstorm was gonna pop up is where it's gonna happen. You can't operate that way when, you have an adversary that by definition is pursuing very rapidly responsive, maneuverable options to fundamentally break that paradigm and they know it's our vulnerability. And so that, that space domain awareness, I'm really glad you brought that up. You can't footstomp enough about how important it is and what a game changer it is. And I hope people on the Hill and in the broader community really key in on that because everything's
2: changed, but
0: I'm not sure everybody
2: realizes that. It's like all of our guardians are operating satellites as if they were pilots who are flying instruments only. And as you said, you get the weather forecast from a couple days ago, but it's also instruments only. And every aspect that you're getting from your instruments is at least a couple minutes old. So how are you expected to fly an aircraft like that? We're flying our satellites like that all the time. Yeah, there's differences between air domain and the space domain. Don't get me wrong. But as the threats continue to mature and as we encounter more and more challenges in space, that model won't hold.
0: No, that's great. Okay. The next panel featured Major General David Rock Miller of U.S. Space Command, Stacey Kubitschek of Lockheed Martin, and our very own General Kevin Chilton. Now we asked them to talk about what it'll take to protect and defend assets in space, and our thinking here on this was, let's face it, space is no longer a peaceful domain. Our adversaries have chosen to pursue kinetic and non-kinetic means to net hostile effects in orbit for their advantage. And so given this reality, we need to be able to protect and defend our ability to have freedom of action and deliver the effects we need to employ and all of that stuff. And, And so the real goal here, obviously, is to deter conflict in space writ large. But we also wanted to talk about what are the strategies, operational concepts, and the associated technologies that we're gonna need to bring this all together and make it happen. So guys, what were the biggest takeaways? We had Space Command industry and a senior leader with space depth, tremendous depth represented on this panel for a reason, it's 360 view, everything. I think you need that to have a complete conversation. What did you guys take from it?
1: Not necessarily a takeaway, but I think it's a really important concept to be able to set the stage and that is the U.S never intended for the space domain to become contested or be a warfighting domain. Our adversaries' actions have driven us to that reality today. That's why we had to have this panel with the exact people that you just laid out, Doug. We're going to go right back and talk about space domain awareness because it really honestly was what underpinned a lot of the takeaways and the points that the panel talked about. Got to have the space domain awareness, have to have the custody capability and be able to understand the targeting of those threats. SDA versus space situational awareness or SSA. It is much more than just an indication and warning, right? We talk about always have your situational awareness. If you're on the Metro or things like that, that is just knowing what's around you. You don't know what their intent is. You don't know what threat they may have on them. You just know that I'm in this environment. That's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about space domain awareness. We have to include, is there hostile intent? What's their threat determination? What are they actually trying to do as an adversary? Custody. Once you've got all this data, you have to be able to maintain custody of that target or that threat all the way through so that you can actually develop a target package that works. It goes back to what you guys just were talking about. You can't do that on, even seconds old data because it's fast, it's maneuverable. And so that custody has to be able to be maintained all the way through. You wanna be able to get and have target quality information about that target. And then getting to the data sets of it, you've got to have a way to get that data timely to a shooter that can actually engage that in a timely action. Right now, we don't have any of those things that I just laid out. And that was what this whole conversation was about. So having these gaps in their coverage, that allows the adversary the time and space that they want to be able to take an advantage against us.
0: And I just want to jump in. I think a huge point that was made in this panel was actually by the moderator, General Daptula, where he said, look, up until very recently, you got in trouble if you mentioned offense and space in the exact same sentence. So again, credit to Space Force leaders who have really helped the public and decision-makers and all understand this context because we can't solve the problem unless we recognize that it exists.
2: Yeah, there's a fundamental premise of our deterrence posture, right? And that is to shift space from being an offensive dominant where the offender, the attacker has the advantage. Right now the big juicy fat targets that General Hyten talked about basically tempt an aggressor to come and attack and we need to make a shift. As Tim pointed out, one of the first steps we're taking to make that shift is through proliferated low-earth orbit architecture, increased diversification of the orbits that we put things in as well, disaggregation of those big, juicy targets into multiple smaller targets. But as General Miller pointed out, the deterrence approach through denial of benefit, through that defense only, will only take us so far. And at some point, we need to be able to hit back. And as potential adversaries like China and Russia continue to expand their space capabilities, what that does is create more and more opportunities for us to respond in kind. And again, and this is something that I think General Miller hit very well, we're there to protect the space assets that the U.S. relies on, that the joint force relies upon. But we're also there to protect the joint force against space-enabled attack by the adversary. That's just absolutely critical. A couple other points that I think were relevant in this discussion, Tim alluded to the custody piece, but it's the custody, the capability, and the capacity. We've lost some of our space domain awareness capabilities in the past because of budget cuts. So we need to make sure that we have the right set of assets and the people to back that up. Another element that, I, that Stacey Kubitschek talked about was the data that we get is only as good as what we can do with it, right? So no matter how many sensors we have, if all of that data sits in a data library and no one's accessing it or being able to leverage it because the network's too slow or because they don't have access to it, that's not gonna do anybody any good. I think that was absolutely critical.
0: Now, and I think, again, we are big fans of norms of behavior and proper standards. The important thing of this conversation is for those to be effective, you have to have means of imposing consequences on adversaries if they cross us. And that's why it's so important To overtly have some of these conversations, I think, because if adversaries think they can get away with it, then what reason do they have to not go pull the trigger and go do it? And so, again, I just think it's it's why we wanted to have this conversation. We got to really understand this.
2: And the threat space is very wide. There was some discussion about the kinetic energy or direct ascent to sats that can cause debris, and that's a very dangerous scenario. But I think a more likely scenario, as General Chilton pointed out, was the ability to dazzle with lasers or the ability to jam or the ability to attack us via cyber. Those are activities that don't cause the debris that are probably more likely to occur. And General Chilton put it, if I were an enemy trying to attack us, I would try to blind us and mute us, right? So deny our ability to see and deny our ability to uh, communicate with one another. And then, of course, an adversary will need to have some sort of battle damage assessment to be assured of the success of their attack. So those are absolutely critical threats that we need to get after. And it was a, an, another point made by Stacy that it's not just the space segment that we need to be protecting here. We know we don't just need to have resilience in our space architecture. It's also the ground architecture, the cyber communications link. And then finally, and the General Miller amplified this. It was the end user equipment as well that's at threat. So all four of those elements have to be protected. Yeah, that's huge. Okay, so the next panel we had was on space's role
0: in missile warning and tracking. And this is a huge deal, especially when it comes to homeland and base defense. It doesn't take a top military strategist to recognize that adversaries like China and Russia are developing long-range strike missiles in large numbers. And we're the aim point here. Let's get real. So our legacy ground-based radar simply fall short tracking these new threats in a time-relevant fashion that's required to provide warning and to cue defenses. Plus these countries, they're also fielding anti-satellite weapons. We call those ASATs for short, and they're designed to degrade and destroy our existing space-based missile warning sensors. So we need a new set of operational concepts and associated technologies, given where these threats are going. And we're pleased that Lieutenant General Deanna Burt, who's the lead for Space Force Operations, Ed Zoyce, l 3 Harris, and then our very own Tim Ryan could join us for this panel. And so aside from the fact that Tim offered the best commentary of the entire day, I'm talking genius level stuff here. <laughs> I want to know, what did you guys think? What are the key takeaways from this panel? And again, by design, we had folks representing government. We had folks from industry and then in an outside think tank perspective
2: on purpose. Because we, again, we want this 360 perspective. Yeah, first, did the mic pick up my laugh of... genius comment about Tim. I'm sorry. That was an adoration laugh, I thought. (laughs) Yeah, of course. It was a great admiration. This is actually a very good discussion that the panel had. And I think you hit it in your opening comments. The threat is changing, even with missile warning and missile defense. So we're not just talking about ballistic missiles anymore. We're talking about hypersonic cruise missiles. We're talking about fractional orbital bombardment, right? So these are assets that go into space, spend a little time in orbit, and then re-enter the Earth's atmosphere to attack. And then once they're in the Earth's atmosphere, they can maneuver and glide. So it's not just following a strict ballistic path either. And they can potentially maneuver around our ground-based radars that that are there to identify where they are and to cue missile defense capabilities. So we need additional space and ground capability to track those assets. So the space development agencies, proliferated LEO architecture looking down, that's an element. And there was a discussion about how difficult it is to track cooler objects, not just the ones that have the hot fire at the back end, but also that are cooler in the glide phase against the backdrop of the Earth, which is a noisy background as compared to the background of space. So that was a very interesting discussion. I think it was also highlighted that a hybrid architecture is required here. We can't just move everything to low Earth orbit. We've got to have a combination of low Earth orbit to medium Earth orbit, as well as geosynchronous, so to make sure that we're maintaining custody of these assets throughout their entire phase. And then finally, there was a discussion about flipping the equation. While we're providing missile defense capability through EA's trance capabilities, we are flipping the equation of deterrence. If it costs more for the missile to shoot down a satellite than the satellite itself, we have fundamentally changed the equation and shifted from that offense dominant to that offense provoking environment to more of a defensive and therefore more stable environment in space. And again, the ultimate goal here is to deter that aggression, deter ever having to have a conflict in space in the first place. Picking up on what you said up front
0: here, people need to get their head around the fact that from the beginning of combat aviation, the United States was fundamentally focused on long range strike. Even in world war one, we were playing around with that because of our geographic position, as a separate continental power, and obviously not surrendered by high-end adversaries. We never really had to think about being the victims of that strike too often. Obviously, during the Cold War, there were options on the table, but many of those are strategic nuclear threats, but not with the conventional strike and other things throughout the equation here. And this is all changing now because of where Russia and China are investing, and we need to wake up and recognize that our country now is at severe risk of Long range strike, and it's in the form of missiles. They're not going on the bomber path that we have chosen, but missiles are their long range strike. So we got to wake up on this. Tim, you're on the panel. What key points are you trying to get across?
1: Yeah, thanks. And thanks for the greatest Yelp review ever in the intro. I appreciate that. So, missile warning, missile defense underpins not only force protection, but it underpins the defense of the homeland. It provides the Early warning that you need, it's going to be able to, now that we start to see the beginnings of a proliferated tracking layer that we talked about earlier and Charles alluded to, now you're going to start to see that you can actually have custody. You can hand things off. You're going to be able to have the targeting data that the defenders actually are going to need. Because you're exactly right. This is an a overdue conversation that we need to have as a, not only the U.S., but actually, quite frankly, North America of what does long-range strike? We are now in those crosshairs. You're set up perfect, spot on. This is the reason that they decided to go down this road of being able to use missiles as their long-range strike is because it's, quite frankly, it's a cheaper bomber to be able to, to lay out for our adversary. So I think that's a big conversation that we have to have, and we're able to start that on this panel. The other things that we talked about that are super important, so the bringing over or bringing on to the Space Force team, the Army's JTAGs units, now for everyone out there that, that might not be aware, JTAGs, those are the early warning, missile warning, mobile Army units that are out at all the regional combat commanders. They provide the missile warning right directly to the combatant commanders. They are focused solely on where, when we look at our traditional Space Force units, they're worried about the world. These teams out there, they're focused on that combatant command and that combat command only. And so they're coming over by the end of this year, over and will be incorporated in the Space Force, just like we saw the Army and Navy military satellite communications. General Burt alluded to it, right? One big missile warning family, and it's the exact way to be able to get synergies across, especially as we start to see the Space Force component commanders being integrated into the combat commands. These JTAGs units not sure if they'll continue to be called JTAG, whatever they come up with these are going to be key elements to that commander's staff of being able to integrate into the combat command and finally with that and i talked about it at the forum and i don't know that i want to be able to make sure that it does not get lost the united states space force deserves a lot of credit for how they've been able to not only in the infant years Stand up a service the first time since 1947. But at the same time, they also integrated Army, Navy units into the Space Force and did an entire inter-service transfer across all the branches of the service. That's really given them a foundational leadership and knowledge level that they could not have done with just Air Force, if you will, space operators. And that would be the end of it. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for that.
0: Yeah, That's a really good point. Okay, next at bat, we had Dr. Derek Tornier, who's the head of the Space Development Agency. And guys, this is somebody who's breathing a lot easier than he was the previous week, because he just oversaw a successful launch of some critical technology his office had been working on over the past few years. So Charles, walk us through SDA's mission and how SDA is doing it differently from other acquisition entities.
2: The launch you're talking about out of Vandenberg Air Force Base, the Tranche Zero of the Space Development Agency's combination of missile tracking and communications transport layer assets. Tim, I think, mentioned this earlier, done within, I believe, 27 months from order to launch, which is phenomenal. And Dr. Tournier was able to say that, yes, we've had contact with all 10 of the satellites successful, some of them with even the first orbit, which was great. But like you said, they're an acquisition organization like, like many others, but what they've done differently is i think fundamentally two things one they're changing what they're acquiring and that is they're now acquiring the smaller satellites for a proliferated low earth orbit constellation as opposed to the large highly exquisite capabilities that you might put at geo and then the second element that they're doing differently is how there's the holy trinity if you will of cost schedule and performance and acquisition and what the space development agency is doing is prioritizing schedule ahead of costs and ahead of performance. The idea is that I can rapidly deliver a minimum viable product of capabilities to the warfighter in very rapid fashion and then iterate on that over time. Because they're in low Earth orbit, because they're smaller satellites, they're going to have a shorter lifespan. And so they can do a tech refresh on those capabilities in a much more rapid fashion, which is incredible. It was really important that Dr. Tornier highlighted the fact that vendor lock is something that's not good for the government or for the industry. And I liked his description of this. It's not good for the government because we're locking ourselves into one vendor that provides that capability and we're blind to any other capabilities. But also, from an industry perspective, if you didn't win that contract and we're in a vendor lock situation, that company might wither away and die. So, maintaining a robust industrial base through a variety of providers as part of an integrated architecture of the Space Development Agency just a brilliant way forward. And then ultimately the delivery of what it is they're providing. I think it was General Burt who said that they're delivering the cars, the keys and the driver. So they're delivering the satellite. They're delivering the ground capability, the keys, and they're delivering the driver. It is a contractor operated system. That sort of approach is great for the rapid delivery. For other systems that the Space Force needs to acquire, that approach may not be the appropriate one because we want to have blue suit operators for other things. So we've got to figure out what's inherently government versus what we can have contractors operate. But the priority on schedule, the delivery of small satellites in low-Earth orbit that can then have a rapid tech refresh rate with a multitude of vendors is just great. It was phenomenal to have Dr. Tornier for our second time here.
0: That's awesome. Tim, what did you take away from it? Tornier got a lot of press coverage, so obviously this is an important talk.
1: Successful launch. Wonderful. Tron Zero is going to have 10 satellites was initially what went up. I think it's worth saying again that was 27 months from order to orbit. I don't, we don't see that very often in, I don't know, acquisitions of space things or pens. So good kudos to them.
0: That's why that launch mattered so much. That was a (laughs) manifestation of all of that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And it. And oh, by the way to a bigger acquisition strategy, if you will, Assistant Secretary Calvelli's laid out what he wants to be able to do, and he has said three years or less, contracts start to launch. This falls right into that. And so definitely from the acquisition leader's perspective, these guys are pushing the envelope right to the edge, which is exactly what they need to do. And oh, by the way, industry is responding to be able to meet that challenge, and that's absolutely wonderful. They changed the name just so that our Listeners are aware the entire thing will be now the Proliferated Warfighter Space Architecture, or PWSA. So if you see that anywhere, that's exactly what they're talking about, is this proliferated orbit that we talked about. Tronche 0, just laying it out as we go. Tronche 0 is going to be 28. Tronche 1 is going to be about 150 satellites. They're going to start that in fall of 2024 to show the aggressiveness of the schedule. And then Tranche 2 is out in 2026 with about 250. Again, one of the other big takeaways, just to talk about the responsiveness piece of it, is Dr. Tornier talked about September 2024. That's going to be our Trunch 1 launching. They are actually planning one launch per month for a year. Now, I know that Elon's doing a whole lot more with Starlink, but when you are talking about Department of Defense launch responsiveness, that is very aggressive and is a good thing to be able to see.
0: Building off that theme, the next panel we had was here to discuss small satellites and the notion of proliferated orbits. And look, we've talked about it, these capabilities are garnering a lot of attention. And the goal is to deliver capability faster, lower cost, and eliminating single points of failure. And it's not a new idea anymore. We've been talking about it for years. Like we just talked about, that what SDA did was one of the first government manifestations of that. And so the Space Force and Space Command are now at this point of crossing into a new threshold here. And so we wanted to look at where we've been, where are we going, what's working, what's not working. And this was kind of an inflection point panel, I would say, to do that review. So we had Brigadier General Tim Shaba, who leads the program executive office of Space Systems Command, with Colonel Eric Felt, the Director of Space Architecture and Integration at Space Force. And then Rob Atkin of General Atomics. And this is a guy that's dedicated his whole professional life, really, to advancing small satellites and, in many ways, inventing the concept. So huge honor to have him. And then we had Charles from our own team. He was on it, too. And this was just, I think, a really rich conversation. It's the variety of perspectives we had here. And so, guys, what were your takeaways?
1: I think it was a great panel. The things that they started to talk about was responsive space launch. That's the new goal. That's the new way forward. All in. And they talked about the fact that these are going to be based upon threats and being able to be responsive to those threats. General Sheba announced that this summer he's doing a challenge to field a capability in 24 hours. So they've done challenges and sets like this in the past, and it was nowhere near 24 hours as a timeline at all. So that's, again, aggressive, pushing it as they go forward. They talked about rapid regeneration is just an additional method beyond proliferation to improve the resiliency. And I think that's an important part. You need to understand that the threats that are out there are real. And you can think about being able to augment capabilities. And the panel talked about this in a couple different ways. There is what people seem to go to when they talk about responsiveness is some launch on demand capability. And we should have that. And I think it's very important and that but that requires having both the rocket and the satellite ready to go and be matched up. So there's a little bit of give and take that's going to have to happen in there and we're going to have to be able to get from an industrial base to to get over and smooth out those fits and stops of development. The other thing that they talked about was being able to rely on commercial capabilities. Commercial space has grown huge over the last decade or so. And so as we start to look at, we've lost something as a military. Can we just go and grab that from a commercial capability in the meantime, as we got to reconstitute. And then finally, the last one that talked about was on orbit spares. Some of the big commercial orbits already have that. It's an interesting idea to be able to have space is a rough domain to just have things sitting. So, that you, there's trade-offs on that. But I think that being able to take a look at that holistically through those three lenses, that's probably the right answer.
2: Yeah. I just want to expand on a couple of things that, that Tim hit on. So uh, general Shaba announced, they called it Victus Knox. And this is something that general Gutline, who's the space systems command commander had mentioned last fall, but the ability to launch within 24 hours, an asset that has a sensor on it that can then support sp- space domain awareness. So, so think of a scenario, for example, an adversary places a, a co-orbital ASAT next to one of our high-value assets, and we want to know what's going on. So within 24 hours, we're going to call up the launch, place that thing in orbit, and have the, not just the satellite and the launcher, but also the ground architecture to operate that thing and give us some eyes on of the situation that's going on. And so Socks is going to go off this summer, uh, looking forward to seeing that activity mature. The ability to assure the capabilities that we get from space to the Joint Warfighter We can term that as mission assurance, and there's three really fundamental aspects for mission assurance. One is the inherent resilience of the architecture itself, and we can get after that resilience as we talked about in a variety of ways, disaggregation, proliferation, distribution, deception, defensive capabilities that we can put on, et cetera. But there's other two elements for that mission assurance that are definitely worth talking about. We did, at this panel, talk a little bit about the reconstitution piece. And so there's a variety of things that enables, so the ability to either launch or to activate or to leverage an existing commercial asset in a new way to reconstitute a capability that might have been lost or to augment a capability that we need in order to prepare for a potential conflict in a particular region on the earth, right? So augmentation as well as reconstitution. The third aspect of the mission assurance piece is defensive operations. And that's really the utilization of a defensive capability that you might have put on the satellite in the first place as part of your resilient architecture. And so the combination of defensive operations that could be enabled by small satellites, as well as the resilience that small satellites can help us do in a variety of ways that we've talked about already, the ability to reconstitute or augment an architecture are all enabled by small satellites. So I think it was a really great discussion about the scope, the breadth of what small satellites can do for our architecture.
0: No, it's really great. And you know, just to show how fast the marketplace is changing. We've had this conversation before with him and he referenced it on his panel, but General Chilton, back when he was at space command as the commander, and then STRATCOM, the idea of responsive launch and all, it existed. He wasn't in favor of it because we didn't have the satellite enterprise. To actually have anything to launch reasonably and so you'd have to have barns of stuff stored and display the timeline if the concepts hadn't married up yet we're now seeing such rapid evolution that these things are going to marry up now and that's actually going to be a practical pragmatic option not something that's so exquisite it's like okay yeah theoretically it could work but really
2: yeah H- having assets that you don't use is inherently not a great cost benefit discussion we do it in certain things nuclear weapons we have we hope to never use them. And part of the reason we have the ones we have is so that no one else uses them either. But from space perspective, having an asset on the ground that's just sitting there waiting to launch and then getting older and the technology becoming more stale, that doesn't make a bit of sense. Yep. And so what we have now, is, as you said, is imagine the launch cadence of the Space Development Agency coupled with the launch cadence of Starlink. We're going to have a launch just about almost every week. And so if we have that and we want to put an additional asset in that launch manifest, we have the ability to do that in the near future. And that's going to be a game changer.
0: Yeah, that's huge. Okay. Closing this out, we had Charles's old boss, Dr. Lisa Costa, who's the chief technology and innovation officer for Space Force. So Charles, what's in her job jar and how does it shape the future vector of the Space Force?
2: It was great to see Dr. Costa again. And The opportunity to describe what it is the Chief Technology and Innovation Office does is always welcomed. But she really hit, I think, a couple key points. The first is that the CTIO is there to operationalize technology. There's a variety of activities going on in in the universities, in the research lab area, and the ability to move that technology from there to the operators is absolutely critical. So operationalizing technology. She talked about, in broad strokes, how the CTIO is working with the university partnership program, university consortium, to increase the flow of information and the encouragement of new ideas. But really, she spent most of her time talking about three key elements as part of her goal of leapfrogging over the technology debt that we find ourselves in, particularly in the area of information technology. And so the first area is ION. It's Integrated Operations Network what we're getting after here is the fact that the existing networks cannot handle the sort of data exploitation and data flow through that we need in order to fully exploit the space domain awareness data that's available to us and the mountain of data that that we know we're going to get when we get additional sensors. So the current networks just cannot handle that. So ION is designed to be a mission network where the Space Force's mission activities can reside. This is not an admin network. It's not like your, your NipperNet or AOL Instant Messenger or any like that. This is a dedicated warfighting mission network. The second element that she highlighted was enhanced unified data library. So the unified data library exists today, but it's existed as a test case, a place, a repository for the space domain awareness data of certain sensors, of certain capabilities. What she's trying to do in cooperation with Space Systems Command is enhance that existing unified data library to be all the data, to include commercial. So that's gonna be a huge swell of capacity and capability there. And then finally, the most ambitious element that Dr. Costa laid out was the space verse. Think of the metaverse, but for space operations and space development and space training. General Saltzman talked about this as well as many other speakers throughout the day, and that was everything a Guardian operator has about the environment and the asset that they're flying Comes from digital sources, right? You're not in the environment. And so the ability to synthesize all of that information in a more intuitive and user friendly way is absolutely critical. Today, an operator is going to be sitting in front of multiple screens looking at the streams of text and data and trying to synthesize that in their head. And Dr. cuss says the strain that's going to put on a guardian really isn't necessary. We can provide visualization tools to include augmented reality, virtual reality, 3D graphics to make that that understanding of the space environment easier for the guardians. And so the Spaceverse is going to do that, leveraging the network of ION, leveraging the data in the UDL to create this environment for guardians to do all of their work. Forgive me for going to an
0: air example, but I just think people get their heads around it. That's so important. It would be like asking air traffic controllers to direct traffic into national airport here in DC based on data streams versus actually having three-dimensional realization what's going on. Yeah, technically you can do it through just pure data, but to actually visualize it realistically, I want to be on that plane. So just huge. And again, this is why we were so pleased she could join us is that she is helping explain why this matters. You know, I'm the guy here that is not from your world and the rest of us did not get these memos. And that is why it is so important that these kind of conversations occur to help broaden that understanding. That's why we were so proud that the press attended and we had C-SPAN and all that, is so people are really exposed to this. Okay, guys, we're about the end of time here, but final round, big picture, what are the top three takeaways you each took from
2: the day? Charles, let's start with you. The concept of mission assurance, not just about disaggregation or proliferation improving resilience, but overall mission assurance was critical. The importance of data, Stacey mentioned this, Dr. Costa mentioned this, data is only as good as as what you can do with it. Having access to data, being able to apply artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning algorithms to that data is absolutely critical. The growth of the Space Force has got to go beyond just the consolidation of missions. We have expanded the job jar, if you will, of the Guardians from just providing capabilities to the Joint Force to doing that plus defending those capabilities against aggression. And so that's going to require a growth in the amount of capability, capacity, manpower at the field to make that happen because moving that technology from the science realm to the operations realm is not an easy undertaking. And so having the right guardians in the acquisition field, as well as the operations field working together to make that happen is absolutely critical. That's awesome. Tim?
0: There's no
1: doubt the service and the combatant command understand how real these threats are now it's imperative that we make sure that Congress and the public writ large understand how real these threats are. When we talk about the space domain, it is different than any of the other domains. A major significant attack on GPS, as an example, would be able to bring the world economies to their knees because everything rides on the backbone of of that standard. And so it's time for everyone to understand that what we're talking about when we talk about these threats. This is not Star Trek kind of stuff. Proliferation efforts. That is the start of the designing of the architecture that is actually needed to fight in a contested warfighting domain. And it's great to be able to see them going after that. Finally, there is only one way to produce credible, combat-ready guardians. And that is through realistic training that is driven by utilizing the ability thinking enemy approach. And that's exactly what they're starting to get at and they should be applauded for that.
0: No, that's awesome. So guys, I just wanted to take time to to really thank you again. I know this took a ton of work. So congratulations to you both for a tremendous achievement. I think the fact that we were able to turn this event after one our inaugural in the fall so rapidly with the new CSO and all that was a tremendous achievement, took a lot of work. Obviously, this is an annual event, so we're looking forward to next year's. And everybody listening, I hope you can make it in person. We did our best to summarize it here, but to really have gotten max value you needed to be in that room. And so hope to see y'all next year. And with that, guys, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks a lot, Doug.
0: Thanks, Doug. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchelaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.